0: All right. Hey, I am so glad to be here this morning. I had eye surgery on Wednesday, my fifth eye surgery. Everybody needs five eye surgeries. Thankful I only have two eyes. I'm seeing a lot better. I think it may be my last surgery at least for a while, but what it means is I've got to start to wear these readers and kind of figure this out and see where my vision goes as it settles down over the next couple of weeks, so hang with me, and if if you wave at me and say, hey, Robin, I'm kind of looking like that, you know, just give me a a little slack. Somebody said, hey, Robin, got the name for your next book, instead of when the bottom drops out, how about when your vision drops out or your eye drops out or something like that, I think they may be on to something. I want to say one other thing before we go to our passage, before we have the privilege of looking at God's word, and that is this, Easter is seven weeks from today. And we are praying, we are planning, our desire is to make this the best Easter worship service-wise in the history of the planet here at Wheaton Bible Church this Easter. And I want to ask you to do two things. I want you to be praying. Be praying that God would anoint, that God would bless, that God the Spirit would move every year all around the world People come to Christ in Easter worship services. And the second thing I want to ask you to do is to begin to think about, to pray about who you can invite. Easter may be the easiest service all year long to invite people that don't know Christ people that are trying to figure out this Jesus thing to a church service. Invite coworkers, neighbors, extended family members. I want you to begin over the next weeks to think about that and to pray about that. We want God to do something incredible. Join us in praying that God would rain down thunder this year, seven weeks from now, at Easter. Now, today, we're going to go back to the gospel of Mark, so turn with me to mark chapter seven we 're continuing this series a series entitled follow me it 's really a series on Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and today we come to a fascinating story about faith, and I want to clarify something on the front end because contrary to popular opinion um, all of us have faith not just religious types Uh, believers have faith unbelievers have faith christians atheists all of us have faith every time someone sits in a chair every time someone applies the brakes they're depending on that chair you're depending on this chair to hold you up they're depending on those brakes and faith is dependence I go to my iPhone, I click on my MaPS app, and for the next 30 minutes, I follow the directions on that app to get to some place I've never been before. What am I doing? I'm exercising faith in that app. Usually, it's right, not always. But really, that's how we journey through life. All of us exercise faith: uh, faith in ourselves, faith in our abilities, faith in our apps. Faith in our wits, uh, faith in people, faith in our our assets, faith in our our jobs, or or faith in God. I say all this uh, uh, simply because I want to say to you, don't let your atheist friend ever imply, hey, you've got faith, but I've got the facts. No, we all exercise faith and today we're going to look at a fascinating just a flat fascinating story on the subject of faith but this story is about faith in jesus confidence in jesus uh, dependence upon jesus not just that jesus is good but that jesus will always be good to me in spite of my brokenness And the beauty and the blessing of that kind of faith, that kind of confidence, that kind of uh, dependence upon Jesus is that this alone is what delivers us from our sinful tendencies to oscillate either between pride on the one hand and and despair on the other. I, I can do this on my own or I'm overwhelmed and I can't do this at all. It's faith that delivers us. It's also faith that delivers us from this horrible bent we all have to bury our insecurities, to bury our miseries under a pile of personal achievements or appearance or or, or status. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is what keeps us sane. Is what makes us whole. It's what fills our lives with gratitude. And today, most of us are gratitude deficient. Most of us are gratitude starved. As a matter of fact, I read this week that most of us have, now follow this, a missile defense system against incoming gratitude. We just shoot it down. Our lack of faith Uh, makes us like the Grinch that stole gratitude. But ultimately, it isn't a gratitude thing. It's It's a faith thing. And it's faith that neutralizes your missile defense system against incoming joy, incoming blessing, incoming gratitude, incoming experience of the living God or with the living God. A lot to say about faith, a lot more. So let's get to our story. Mark chapter 7, we pick it up in verse 24. Mark 7:24. Follow with me as I read from God's holy word. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about it, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, no less. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home, found her child lying on the bed, and the demon, well, the demon was gone. So what I want to do, three things. I want to look, first of all, at the two main characters, Jesus and the mother, Jesus and the mother. Then I want to look at their amazing interaction. That's the heart uh, of this story. And then I want to draw some conclusions about what this says about faith. I want to apply what we can learn about faith here. So let's start with Jesus. Go back to the beginning, verse 24. In verse 24, we are told that our Lord Jesus is on the move. He has left Israel and moved actually relatively deeply into Gentile territory, to the vicinity, we are told, of Tyre. Now look at this map. Let's get this map up here, and I want you to see Tyre on the Mediterranean coast to the left, right under Sidon, and it was about 30 miles from Capernaum, really a long way. Jesus actually, in the next couple of accounts, is going to travel about 120 miles, most of it into Gentile territory, going to be gone for a couple of weeks. Now Tyre today is in modern Lebanon. So Jesus is in Lebanon. Very dangerous place today. But in Jesus' day, this was Assyrian Phoenicia, which used to be the land of the Canaanites. Think Joshua moving in and taking the conquest of the land. He was dealing with the Canaanites. And at all points in the history of Israel, the people that lived in this area were some of Israel's biggest enemies, just to the north and a little to the west. So, yes, Jesus' earthly ministry was primarily to Israel, not exclusively, but mostly. To the Jew first and to the, uh, then to the Gentiles, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. But here in our passage, Jesus reveals his love. Jesus reveals his commitment to the whole world. And here he does something. He foreshadows or he uh, pictures what will be the responsibility of the disciples to take the gospel to the whole world. He he foreshadows what we're going to read about in the book of Acts as the gospel explodes around the world. So here in this passage, in this one verse, verse 24, we see again the missionary heart of Jesus. We see his love for everyone. We see the risks he takes in crossing boundaries, crossing borders, going to difficult, unfamiliar uh, places. But you say, wait a minute, if Jesus is so interested in the Gentiles, then why are we told that Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there? And the answer is not because he didn't want to reach the Gentiles, but because the disciples, his disciples, weren't ready. They weren't ready. Because Jesus is now in a phase where he is focusing on developing the disciples. Let me illustrate that. Turn ahead two chapters to Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. And we read, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where he was. Now he's back in Israel. Because, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples. Now the same thing is going on in chapter 7 while Jesus is in Phoenicia. Reaching the Gentiles is coming. But Jesus doesn't want his primary ministry of disciple-making and teaching to be trumped by the secondary ministry of healing. Now Jesus loves the whole world, loves everyone. But he knows the only way the world will be reached is by making disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Ted spoke to this a minute ago. So that's Jesus. The other main character is this mother. She is described in verses 25 and 26. And I want you to understand, of all the people that approach Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, of all the people, she has the least going for her from a Jewish perspective. She's a woman, she's a Gentile, and she's from the hated Phoenicians. Not a lot going for her. And to make matters worse, her family is in shambles, spiritual shambles. Her little daughter was demon-possessed. In Matthew's account, Matthew has this woman say to Jesus, my daughter is suffering terribly. And she was. As a matter of fact, we have some different accounts in the uh, the Gospels that show us what this is like in the lives of children. Turn back to to Mark chapter 9 and verse 17 where we have an illustration of this in the life of a son. We read Mark 9, 17, Teacher, I brought you my son, who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us that this demon was also throwing this son into the fire and into the water. All sorts of burns, all sorts of lacerations. Maybe that was the case with this little girl, Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Can you imagine as a parent? Go back to Mark chapter 7. Now, while we don't see this as much in the the West today, we do see it, but not in the West. I, I can't imagine anything more horrific as a parent. This woman not only had demons in her home, she had a daughter that was demon-possessed. And the fact that the mother came, not the father, indicates that she was most likely a single parent. Her father had checked out, the dad had checked out a long time ago, and this woman was on her own. It means she didn't go out much. Uh, She couldn't do much because she never knew what the demon was going to do with her daughter. She probably didn't sleep a whole lot. Can you imagine the stress in her life, this mother's life? She had every reason to be angry, every reason to be bitter, every reason to be depressed, every reason to be overwhelmed, every reason to be an alcoholic, to reject God. Now, maybe this family had secrets. Maybe they had done, mom and dad had done some bad stuff and had given Satan and the demons an entree and maybe this mother was riddled with guilt and regrets. Look what I've done. Her life was one long nightmare. let me just say to those of you in the marketplace, to those of you in in different neighborhoods or your extended families, God in his sovereignty has placed you where you are. And, And here we see Jesus as a missionary go to where it's difficult, it's dark, and it's uncomfortable so that people that are being destroyed by demons, by dysfunction, by deceit, and by disbelief might be saved. Never ever lose sight of that. So those are the two characters. Now we come to the heart of the story, and the heart of the story is the interaction between the two characters, between Jesus and this woman. This is a crazy interaction. It's, a, it's a fascinating. It's frankly hard to get your mind around all that's being said here. If you look at verse 27, Jesus says something that's like, what? First, let the children eat all, their, all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and uh, toss it to their dogs. Really, Jesus? Uh, did Jesus really say that? I mean, these words seem to be difficult. These words seem to be hard. They seem to be derogatory. They seem to be harsh and offensive. The children refer to Israel. The bread refers to Jesus' ministry of redemption, and the term dogs refers to Gentiles' including this woman that Jesus is speaking to. And what in the world is going on? Uh, Some say that this is Jesus' most offensive statement in the Gospels. There are people that try to soften this by pointing out that the term for dog here doesn't refer to wild scavenger dogs that ran all over the place, apparently, but to house pets, as if that makes it more palatable. But from my perspective, a dog is still a dog, right? Others say, well, really, what was going on here is Jesus was probably warmly smiling as he said this, and he was saying this as if, like, other people say this. You know, I I love you, and I'm not saying you're a dog, but here's what other people say. Uh, maybe, maybe. It doesn't really help me that much because what we have is a woman that's desperate, a child that's a demon-possessed, and Jesus is denying her in a way that appears to be racist. Dog. So let me say a couple of things to help us figure out what's going on here the first is if you go back to the preceding context of the chapter like say verse 15 jesus there clearly and repeatedly by the way declares all things clean like foods which would be revolutionary for the jews Therefore, it's inconceivable that here, just a little, a few verses later, Jesus would be saying, all foods may be clean, but not all people. It's really hard to believe that. Then if you look at verse 28, what you notice is that this woman uses the same term dog to refer to herself and to her daughter, and she does it without revulsion. So what Jesus seems to be doing in in this difficult statement is using a Jewish idiom that this woman would have been familiar with to illustrate not just the difference between Jew and Gentile according to an Old Testament perspective, but Jesus here is highlighting the priority of his ministry to the Jews. So what Jesus is doing is talking priorities. He's talking to her about timing. And that's why he uses the word first. Or right now, this is what the kingdom of God is about. He's saying it's a timing thing. Now, is there an edge here? Yeah, there's an edge here. Uh, Jesus is like Aslan in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Jesus is good, but Jesus is not what? Safe. He, Jesus is uh, gracious, but Jesus is not a pushover. Uh, Jesus is tender, but Jesus is not tame. And I read this, and I, I, I struggle with it, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and I realize, Rob, you need a bigger vision of Jesus. And you've got to avoid boxing him in. So let me leave that, and I'll come back to it a little. But I want to go on. I want you to look at verse 28. Because in verse 28, we have this amazing response of the woman. Uh, Jesus, uh, e- even though the dogs, you know, the dogs are a, a, a distant second to the, to the children, uh, the crumbs end up on the floor, and the dogs eat with the children. And that is incredible. It's not only an incredible statement and incredibly bold, but here what is going on is she is accepting Jesus' priorities, Jesus' statement of timing. And she reveals that she understands and submits to God's bigger plan of redemption, Israel's privilege and her place all of that reveals an incredible faith on the part of this woman that is much more far-reaching than just wanting Jesus to perform a miracle. I mean, there's acceptance and there's submission to the plan of God here. And this is why Jesus is so affirming in verse 29 for such a reply. And in Matthew's account, Jesus says to her, Woman, you have great faith." Uh, So we ask ourselves uh, the question, well, why does Mark record this interaction? Or why does Jesus delay? Why does Jesus play a a, a little hardball, if you will? Why doesn't after she's begging, Jesus just immediately heal heal her? And the answer seems to be that Jesus wants to expose the disciples to what real faith looks like because it's absent in their lives. And the point of this interaction seems to be uh, that Jesus wants the disciples to never look at a Gentile in the same way again. That Jesus wants the disciples to go to school on what this woman is revealing and to see the bigness of God's global plan of redemption and to step into more of a lifestyle characterized by the awe of God. She had it. They didn't. And so there's a lot going on here, but what I want to do is zero in on her faith. And now I want to move and I want to draw four applications, and here's the first. Faith, according to this account, grows in the soil of dissatisfaction. During Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, you're not going to find a whole lot of faith in Jerusalem, the spiritual headquarters of the planet. You're not going to find a whole lot of faith among the Jewish business leaders or or spiritual leaders. And by the time of Jesus' crucifixions, the disciples are on the run and Peter denies Christ. Yet here in our passage, this Phoenician Canaanite woman with no telling what kind of background she had has extraordinary faith. What is the difference? She was dissatisfied. Yes, she was dissatisfied with her circumstances to be sure who wouldn't be but she was also dissatisfied spiritually and she knew she believed there were answers and she knew she didn't have them and she was on a mission. Now the rest of the New Testament, and we see this here, will tell us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is no respecter of person, education, background, race, IQ, status, anything like that. Christianity is fundamentally always an outsider movement. But one of the main reasons for the pervasive lack of faith in our culture today is that we're way too satisfied. with where we are and our stuff. And so we end up being satisfied with our stuff and we miss the Savior. And our problem isn't that we are weak. Uh, our problem is our delusion of personal strength. This woman was beyond that. She saw through the phoniness of living by externals. And she was fundamentally dissatisfied, not just with her circumstances, but with her sin, with her religion. And faith, faith always grows in the soil of dissatisfaction. Second thing we see, second thing she tells us, she teaches us, is that faith, biblical faith, this biblical confidence and dependence grabs on to Jesus. Her faith, I want you to understand, is Christ-centered, is Jesus-centered. It is thoroughly grace-centered. In verse 25, look back at verse 25. We're told as soon as she hears about Jesus, she came and fell at whose feet? Jesus' feet she runs to jesus she wouldn't let go of jesus she wouldn't stop praying wouldn't stop begging faith is dependence biblical faith is dependence upon jesus it's casting yourself on the mercy of jesus it's pursuing jesus it's praying it's talking it's begging from jesus it's listening to jesus it's focus and it's passion It's this intersection of the the mind and and the heart and and the will coming together in such a way that that regardless of your history, regardless of what you have done, regardless of your regrets, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your previous sin, the most important thing in your life is Jesus. Faith is Jesus-centered here. Uh, faith understands. This Jesus-centered faith understands it. Resolution and, and, and rest is, is never found in understanding. Lots of things she didn't understand. But it's found in trust. It's not found in the results. It's found in the process. And we want the results. Faith here isn't just a head thing. It's not just a theological thing. And the theology in our, our heads being involved is, is critical. It's ultimately a heart thing. A deep, seeded passion to be blessed by Jesus Jesus will you heal my daughter I think we have one of the great new testament pictures of faith here and faith here is thoroughly Christ centered third faith is persistent This woman was, if she was anything, man, she was persistent. She grabs onto Jesus. She refuses to let go. We see this in verse 26. We see it again in verse 28 where she refuses to take no for an answer. Uh, Just this week, I was reading someone who was saying, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the providence of God. I believe in the faithfulness of God. Uh, I believe in the sovereign plan of God, but I have lived long enough to know that next to God's reliability, God's other name is surprise. And then he told this story. A man by the name of Victor Kempeler lived in Germany in pre-World War II. He was a scholar, he was an academic, he was a university professor at the University of Dresden in Germany. And his specialty, his focus, his life's work was 18th century French literature. As a matter of fact, his dream, the, the dominant motivation of his life was to write the definitive work on 18th century French literature. Because he knew that if he could do that, all sorts of good things would follow. And he devoted his life to that dream. But then the Nazis came into power in Germany. And Keempler was a Jew. And piece by piece, the Nazis took away his freedom. First, they took away his phone. Then his car. Then they canceled some of his classes. Then they canceled all of his classes. Then they took away his home and moved him into a Jewish house, which was the last stop before the concentration camp. And Kempler's dream went up in smoke. But Kempler kept a diary, a diary of his sufferings. And no matter how bad it got, every day he would write in his diary, often observing how uh, suffering makes some people warm and compassionate and others cold and bitter. And in the providence of God, Kempler survived World War II, and so did his diary. And while he had dreamed of of writing this academic book in French literature, he wrote something much more profound on suffering. You see, God is reliable. God is faithful. But his other name is surprise. 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 And I say this because God is writing a story in your life and with your life. And some of you are trying to get him to write a different one. And you're pushing back. And you're rejecting it. This person poor woman in Mark chapter 7 had no idea her story would involve a demon possessed daughter and all the misery that that would entail but instead of rejecting God, instead of collapsing in self pity and bitterness or alcoholism she found freedom, she found transformation in the midst of her surprise by reaching out to Jesus, grabbing on to Jesus and holding on to him in faith and submission wow talk about persistence yesterday paul tripp uh, told us at lunch that god sends storms into the lives of his children not because he has forgotten us but because he loves us and what do you and i want you and i want the grace of relief okay god that's enough But God wants to infuse in us the grace, and these are my words, of submission and faith and persistence. Boy, please hear me in this. God is reliable, but his other name is surprise. And what enables us to deal with the surprises is the persistence of faith. And that's exactly what we see In this woman, as she clings to God's Son, as she clings to Jesus. Fourth and finally, I'll be done with this. Faith here is also humble. I'm amazed at her humility. Now, to be honest, as I intimated, there's a lot of stuff I don't get in this interaction. I, I don't quite understand why Jesus is so hard on her, why he uses the term dog, why he puts her off, why he appears to put her down, why he makes this hard. You know, I, I get that he's probably testing her so he can reveal to the watching disciples what real faith looks like. And so everybody will understand that that Jesus, you know, is not some sort of divine drive-through, dispensing miracles like McCain. McDonald's does fries. But in any case, I do know that today most of us would have been infuriated with Jesus' words. We want to tame God. We want to politically correct God. We want God in a box. And if Jesus is something I've got to work at or something that complicates my life or makes it more messy, then man, I don't want anything to do with him. And we call that arrogance. Pride keeps God on a short leash. God, what are you doing here? God, you have no right to do this. But not this woman. What we see is a humility here. She says, you know, I'm willing to be a dog in the kingdom of God if I can eat the dog's crumbs. Now say what you want, but always, always file that under humility. Humility is teachable. Humility is patient. Humility is is, is submissive to God. So Peter, anticipating the struggle, will tell us in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And he will exalt you at the proper time, his time. So may this woman's faith be your faith. And may her experience of of grabbing onto and, and holding onto the grace and the divine power of Jesus be your experience as well. Let's pray. Father, there's something really complicated and yet extraordinary going on in this simple passage while it appears straightforward, it's hardly straightforward at all. Would you give us the grace to hear? I want to pray, God, in light of this woman's testimony that you would increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, would you stand with me? Our prayer team will be down in front. They would love to pray with you. But now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all that we ask or think, according to his power, this power that works within us, to him be the glory. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning.